Ephesians chapter 4, I want to read verses 1 through 3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with longsuffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Amen. Father God, as we look at your word, I pray that you would bring your illumination, uh, understanding of your word and how it applies in the specifics of our lives. Help us to grow up in Christ in all things. Pray that you would anoint my lips and uh, take this weakness of clay vessel. And Father, that you would use it to quicken that word to each and every heart. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. may be seated. Ephesians 4 is a wonderful chapter on community. I'm looking forward to preaching through it. But uh, unfortunately, many people have taken uh, this chapter and they have taken some verses out of context and they have used it to try to promote a grossly unbiblical uh, unity. For example, uh, in this city there are people who are calling for uh, unity and fellowship and joint ministry between liberals, uh, Roman Catholics and evangelicals. And uh, they think that the only way that the lost in the city can be reached is if the whole church is united together, giving the gospel to a lost world. But they fail to define what church is, what unity is, what gospel is, what salvation is. And let me tell you something, uh, Roman Catholics, uh, emergent uh, church, liberals and true evangelicals have quite wildly differing views of what those things are. Uh, they want to get to the practice of Christianity uh, without worrying about the doctrine. As one pastor worded it, doctrine divides, but love unites. Well, as I talked with this guy, it became painfully obvious he did not have a biblical definition of what love was. <clears throat> because he threw out doctrine, his practice became wrong. And this is why I've always said that the only way you can have orthopraxy that's a good practice as if you have orthodoxy or good doctrine. And so Paul begins this chapter with the word therefore. That word tightly links the doctrine of uh, chapters 1 through 3 with the practice of chapters 4 through 6. And so in effect, what Paul is doing is he's saying in light of all of the wonderful doctrines, I've told you the doctrines of the faith, I want you to live consistently with that doctrine. Here's how I want you to live. And he begins to spell that out. And so what he is indicating with that word, therefore, is he is grounding his doctrine of community, his practice of community, I should say, upon truth, not upon our experience. Now, we tend to reverse that. Uh, we tend to picture the kind of experiences that we would enjoy, that we would really appreciate and uh, that would make us feel a part of community. And we never stop to think if our definition of community is correct in the first place. The kind of community that Paul describes in chapters 1 through 3 is radically different from the kind that you find in the, in the uh, charts and the planning um, uh, papers in many boardrooms of churches. Pastor Doug Goins said, My first instinct in community building is toward being an activist. I want to schedule meetings, create organizational charts, 
Encourage dialogue. Establish a budget. Hire an ombudsman. Get a policy statement down on paper. And Paul says, no, the first thing you need to do is you need to go to doctrine and make sure that you are doing your practice in a way that is consistent with truth. And so, first thing, you get doctrine. The second thing that you do is you claim God's power. The third thing you do is you adjust your attitudes to be consistent with that doctrine, to be consistent with God's power. The fourth thing that you do is to throw off the counterfeits to true community, which are man-made and man-centered. And the last thing that you do is you engage in community-building activities that he lists in this chapter. And there are actions that we must engage in. We're going to look at those, but Paul shows us We need to slow down, first of all. We need to look at some of the pillars, some of the foundational pillars that will help us to have a biblical and a godly community. Let's look, first of all, at the pillar of doctrine. One of the doctrines that Paul speaks about a great deal in chapters 1 through 3 is the doctrine of the Trinity. It is the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is the model for our community. And so the fact that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal, totally equal in their attributes and in their glory becomes then a basis for Paul indicating we need to treat everyone with equal dignity. Uh, But the fact that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not equal in their roles is picked up by Paul and he indicates that uh, we are not equal in our roles either. And so both sides of that coin are applied by Paul to the relationship of husband and wife, relationship of parents with children and of employers with employees. Uh, The fact that the father delegates both responsibility and uh, authority to the son hugely informs us as leaders on how we should delegate responsibility and authority. Now, the fact that the Father honors and empowers the Son in chapter 1 is, in the, is used by Paul in chapter 5 to indicate husbands need to uh, honor and nurture their wives just as Christ does. But the Son's total submission to the Father and delight in doing the Father's will also informs his later discussions. Now, I wish I could take the time to go through chapters 1 through 3 and show all of the different ways in which Paul really literally in these later chapters takes that doctrine of the Trinity and applies it to the various communities uh, that we live in. Uh, We don't have time to go through all of that. And uh, the fact that I've already preached five sermons in the Trinity series and shown the practical implications, I'm just going to let any newcomers uh, order that series and look to that uh, for yourself. But community... Uh, must not. Paul does not want us to ignore the fact that the Trinity is the model for how we should engage in community. Community does not mi- mean a mindless and a mushy sentimentalism. Uh, it does not mean standing up and giving strangers that you don't know a big hug and saying, I love you. No, it's far more concrete and practical and far more profound uh, kind of actions that uh, he describes as community are governed by his law. A second major doctrine is how the middle wall of partition, which was a ceremonial law, was broken down in chapter 2. God did away with that so as to join Jew and Gentile into one body. And for the sake of time, I'm going to skip over that point. I may refer to it a little bit later on. Uh, But uh, I think most of the applications are fairly obvious. Having to be selective here. Which doctrines from these first three chapters am I going to highlight? But I do want to briefly talk about point D. In fact, I want you to turn to chapter 1, and I want you to notice the pervasive doctrine of the union that we have with Christ. And 
I'm going to bank on what uh, Mike's already said. He did a good job of showing the profound ways in which our union with Christ affects everything from here throughout eternity. Uh, Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him. So we're in Christ, we're in Him. Uh, Verse 6, in the Beloved, he's pointed other uh, phrases in chapter 1 where our union with Christ means that apart from Christ, we can have no salvation, we can have no fellowship, we can have no assurance, uh, we, can't, um, we certainly can't have fellowship with each other. It all flows from Christ. And this means it's wrong to speak of fellowship with unbelievers. Sometimes people say, yeah, I'm just going to go have fellowship with this guy. Well, you can have fun with him, you can talk with him, but true fellowship can only occur between those who are united with Christ. Well, he goes on uh, in chapter 4 to show that the reason we must enjoy community with each other is because every one of us is united to Christ. Uh, you may remember from last uh, sermon, the phrase from Matthew 25 that Jesus said, Inasmuch as you have done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. And of course, the reverse is true. Inasmuch as you have not done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you have not done it to me. And so, we cannot claim to have fellowship with Christ when we are breaking fellowship with those who are united with Christ. Now, that doctrine of union with Christ, if it is lived out, it will force us to begin to treat each other not as uh, opportunities to fill a program or statistics, but to relate to each other in a personal way. Uh, it'll give us a Christ-centered focus on everything. And I mentioned last, um, last time that it, it really is a helpful thing when you're talking with others to imagine yourself talking to Christ. When you're serving others, Colossians and Ephesians both say, we need to be thinking that we're doing it as to the Lord. We're serving the Lord Christ and not just uh, serving uh, other, other believers. And so the doctrine of union with Christ takes church ministry completely out of the realm of machinery and statistics and organization into a personal dimension. Now, another implication of our union with Christ is not just how we treat others, but what we even think of community. You know, you might think, well, I don't really need community or I don't like community or community doesn't really work. Well, it really doesn't matter what you need or what you want or what you think. That's utterly immaterial. What matters is what does Christ want and what does Christ think? Uh, what best glorifies Him? Rarely did Jesus express His heart's yearnings and His heart's desires. But one of the times that He did, He said, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And so Christ has a passion for gathering His children together into community. That's where His heart is. Whether our heart is there or not, we need to recognize this is where His heart is at. And that's why it's so important to begin with doctrine rather than beginning with our feelings. It is what Christ desires that really matters. And our community is not based on the fact, as we mentioned before, that we like each other, we agree together, um, uh, or that we have uh, any common hobbies. It does not flow first and foremost from the impulses of our heart or the desires of our heart. It flows first and foremost from the fact He desires uh, a community. He has purchased 
community. Christ said, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Take a look at chapter 1 and verse 10. <clears throat> this gives Christ's goal in history. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Now, in eternity, that's actually going to happen. But in chapter four, he says it needs to be happening more and more in history as the church relates to each other. So, since we're united with Christ, it means that we need to learn to relate to each other as Christ would relate one to the other, to discipline people when they need discipline, to correct people when they need correction, just as Christ would do, to comfort, to encourage, to do the kinds of things with each other that Christ would do with the body. Now, point E speaks of the truth of the transforming power of Christ's grace. That's in chapter 1, verse 15, through chapter 2, verse 10. Now, that, that's a long description of the incredible power that Christ's grace produces in people's lives. And I think it answers another objection to community. One of the reasons why people leave community or don't join community is sin. You know, maybe the sin of other people who have hurt us with their words, with uh, uh, some of the things that they have done. Maybe a syntyche and a euodia and uh, Philippians who have hurt each other's feelings and they want, they, they want to break fellowship with each other. Or it may be my own sin, my own anger, my own uh, frustrations uh, that do that. But if we can be firmly convinced of the power of God's grace at work in another person's life, it'll give us a foundation to have patience uh, with them. In fact, one of the things I encourage you to do, if there's somebody you're really frustrated with, pray Paul's prayer. If we pray anything according to his will, uh, he says it will be done in heaven. Well, here's, here's a prayer that you can pray on behalf of another person who's acting like a jerk or really is not uh, living as he ought to be living. He's too immature morally or theologically. Look at verses 15 through 23. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And you... Pray something like that. The doctrines contained in there will give you a new appreciation for the uh, Christian who irritates you. Verse 19 says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in that fellow believer. Same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 reminds us that apart from grace, we're all children of Satan. And it says there, we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And so we need to develop an attitude there, but for the grace of God, I would be. If it wasn't for God's grace, I'd be doing exactly the thing that this guy who's all messed up is doing. And so when we break fellowship, many times what is happening is that we are forgetting that we are all, apart from his grace, worthless, depraved sinners. We're also forgetting the power of his grace to transform. 
and the undeservedness of that grace. Uh, the next section, chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 21, shows us that the most offensive divisions that may exist have been torn down through the cross of Christ. And they need to be torn down in the churches. So if you can think of any person you'd just rather not associate with because of the race that they are, then that needs to be completely repented of. And we need to remember in verse 12, he says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been made near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of division between us. And so the doctrines of this chapter definitely deal with a breaking down of racial distinctions, but I think any other kinds of groupings as well. If there's people who just don't want to associate with young people, we're going to have our older people's group, and that's the only ones we're going to fellowship with, or children who only want to fellowship with children. Uh, that can be fine just as far as having fun, but don't confuse that with the fellowship and the community that God has ushered us into. That community transcends race. It transcends age uh, groups. And I praise the Lord that in this church, young people have learned how to relate to old people and, and uh, vice versa. And there's a, there's a great uh, mixing it up of the ages. So the biblical concept of community is family. It's not a social club. Now, there are other doctrines we could have looked at. I think just what I've given you there ought to give you enough so you can see, wow, doctrine does impact the kind of community that we're talking about. Let's look at the second foundational pillar. It's God's power. Now, we'll touch on verse 3 in a moment. It speaks of the unity of the Spirit. It's a unity that the Spirit of God Himself is producing. It's His power. But I want to, first of all, just briefly point out, Paul was living that out. Uh, he was not writing from an ivory tower and saying, oh yeah, you guys need to have unity. But he's never experienced uh, having to deal with difficult people himself. Verse 1, he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you. And then in verse 13 of the previous chapter, he says, Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. He was suffering on their behalf. Now, we shouldn't think he was complaining. Uh, he wasn't complaining. In fact, he was indicating, hey, it's not Rome that's put me here. Jesus has put me here for some purpose. And I'm submitting to that. I'm a prisoner not of Rome. I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think he brings it up here again because it's an answer to, by modeling, uh, it's an answer to the objections people might have. They might say, well, yeah, I, I just have a difficult time with community in my family. You don't understand the nagging mother-in-law that I have. Life is tough. And Paul could say, well, I'm in prison and I'm still committed to living by the power of God's grace. They might say, you don't understand the, the wife or the husband that I have to live with. And he says, man, I'm chained to this guard who's never found out there is such a thing as ivory soap. And if and there was such a thing. He had to wash his mouth out. He's a tough guy to be living side by side 24 hours a day. Well, I'm sure they had shifts that they went through. But his point was, I'm not writing from an ivory tower. I'm going through the same kinds of experiences that you guys have gone through. And I believe by God's grace, you can experience this kind of community yourself. Uh, but I want to focus especially on verse 1 where he talks about to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The word worthy in the Greek means fitting to or consistent with 
when we fail to live out the things that he outlines in chapter four, he says, we're not walking worthy of our calling. We're denying our calling. We're not uh, walking consistently with that. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that there are two kinds of calling. There is the outward call where God's Word tells people what their responsibilities are. That goes even to unbelievers. Then there is the inward call of the Holy Spirit where He draws our hearts out to Him. And that call begins at salvation when He calls us with the Gospel. We come to Him, but it continues in sanctification. Uh, That calling also draws us out into uh, what kinds of work we should be involved in. He calls us into ministry. And uh, the the call is the power of God's Spirit drawing our spirits into the things that He desires us to to walk in. And what did God call us to in chapters 1 through 3? Let's take a look at it. Chapter 1, verse 2, it's called us into His grace and peace. That means two things. It means grace and peace is available to us, but it also means that that grace and peace can enable us to live uh, in relationships as He's called us to. When we lack grace and peace, we are failing to walk worthy with our calling. In verse 3, He called us into the multiplied spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. And so when we don't know how to write out uh, in our spiritual checkbook to receive those blessings from heaven... We're not walking worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Uh, Verse 4, he calls us that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, which means that true community does not ignore holiness. In verse 5, he calls us into sonship, which means if we are exhibiting all of the fears and the anxieties and the insecurities of an orphan spirit, then we're really not walking consistently with the call that God has given in our lives. See, to walk worthily implies there's action on our part. There's something that we need to do. Yes, God is doing something in our lives. There's a power that is there, but it's a power we need to actively and consistently live with. And you can think of many scriptures that tie those two together. In Philippians, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for... It is God who works in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So, we're working out what He is working into us. The both are, are, are definitely true. Uh, you know, God can give you a 45 uh, uh, revolver, but if you don't pull the trigger, nothing's going to happen, right? He can give you an incredible resource, but we, by faith, need to be using that resource. We need to pull the trigger, And so, just on a thing like that, uh, orphan spirit versus a sonship spirit, when we are nagged by those demons who are trying to bring fear and insecurity and doubts of our salvation into our lives, we need to, by faith, begin rejoicing, saying, yes, Lord, I rejoice, I take you seriously in your word, that I am your son and I receive your spirit who cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father. It's pulling the trigger and saying to those demons, forcing them to flee because we're overcoming them with the word of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb. So we have to walk our calling. In verse 6, He calls us into a state of being accepted. In verse 7, He calls us into the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. When you don't feel forgiven and you don't forgive other people, you're not walking consistently with the calling that God has called you to. And so all of the things in chapters 1 through 3 are a heritage that Paul wants us to live out by faith. He wants us to pull the trigger on that revolver. 
God's power is there. We've got to receive it and live it by faith. Now, that means that the calling of chapter 1, verse 8 helps define true community and shows that a community that is not interested in wisdom and prudence is a false community. A lot of people say, oh, just don't even say anything about doctrine, doctrine divides. All through these chapters, you say God has called us to truth. He's called us uh, to, to, to walk worthy of it. That means that community which is wrapped up in me, 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 and how other people can serve me hasn't taken seriously the fact that chapter 1, verse 12 says, we have been called to be to the praise of His glory, not our own. One of the ironies of counseling is that when people come, they want to get fixed, that they do not get fixed until they begin to learn to have a slave's heart, a servant's heart that is seeking to minister others. They think, well, I'll be able to minister to others after I get fixed, after I begin to have all my hurts and wounds taken care of. And it never works that way until people by faith begin to live consistently with their calling. And God has called them to live to his glory and live in service to others. They do not find healing as soon as they begin by faith to serve others when they feel I need I need to be served myself. But when they begin to serve, they find healing coming. It's just an amazing thing because they're living consistently with the calling to which God has purchased us. And throughout these chapters, he tells us we need to abandon selfishness and to become servants of the Most High who has purchased us. We're not called to make God a servant. We're called to be servants. Now, on the other hand, when we fail to actively be engaged with the body, we're failing to live out the calling given in chapter 1, verses 22 through 23 where he says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that means at least two things. It means first, we are as a body, uh, the church, are filled with his fullness because he fills all things. But that other phrase where it says that the body is the fullness of him indicates, as Jones says, that we as the church are his fullness in the same way that a body is the completion and fullness of the head. Now, this is such an astonishing truth, and I think it's so profound in terms of its implications for community. I want to read from Martin Lloyd-Jones' uh, chapter 1 commentary um, at length. But let me first of all summarize a few points. He points out that the head is not a complete body. Head is not a complete body. Secondly, he points out that the body is in some sense the fullness of the head. And he says that corrects two um, uh, extremes that one finds in the church. One extreme is to say that the body can do stuff without the head. And Christ makes it clear that is impossible. Without me, you can do nothing. The other extreme is to say that the body does nothing. The head does everything. And he says what the reality is, is that the uh, body must be active because the head has chosen to do everything through the body. And now that, that's an astonishing thing because Jesus needs nothing. He is totally self-complete. And yet he has chosen to do all of his cosmic purposes through the church of Jesus Christ. Now, let me read from that chapter that Lloyd-Jones uh, gave. He says, the muscle is not isolated. It cannot do anything in and of itself, but it is alive because it is receiving energy and life from the brain through the nerve. 
In its normal state, it is relaxed and flabby. In that state, it can achieve little, if anything. It cannot enable you to lift weights, for instance. Before that muscle or group of muscles can be of value or help to us, they must be exercised and developed. If we fail to exercise and develop them and simply wait for some great accession of power, we shall be sadly disappointed. To develop a muscle, we must exercise it. And the more we exercise the muscle, the greater will be the energy and the power supplied to it. The two things work together at the same time. We must not say that it is all from the brain or that it is all in the muscle. The muscle makes use of the power that it receives from the brain through the nerve. The brain acts through the developed muscle. Now, what is true of the physiology of the body is equally true spiritually. The way to receive more power is to use and exercise the power you have. As a Christian, you are not lifeless. You are connected to the head. The spiritual nervous power is there in him. You say, my muscles are flabby. I reply, exercise them. Similarly, do not wait for a sudden blessing of sanctification. Do all you can and the blessing will come. You will be conscious of greater power and the Lord will reveal himself to you in the power and the wonder of his might. Let us never forget that the energy of the strength of God's power is in us because of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body of which we are the parts. There is no excuse for sin. There is no excuse for failure. The energy is there and I must use it. I must exercise my faculties and I shall then find that there is infinitely more energy available. I shall go from strength to strength, from glory to glory, until eventually I, with all other Christians, attain unto the perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that concept uh, to be mind-blowing, that the church is the fullness of Christ. If Christ chooses to limit His work in history to what the church is willing to take on, it makes community imperative. There can be no passivity. There can be no waiting. There can be no individualism. The parts of the body must work together. So we must, first of all, walk. And then we must walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called in the first three chapters. If we don't, our, our, our generation will just be left on the dust, dustbin of history. Now, I've just given you some samples of what it means to walk worthy of the calling. If we had the time, I could go through every verse in chapters 1 through 3 and show how it does have an impact upon the way in which we engage in community, the way in which the head sends his impulses through the body to the muscles, but how we've got to exercise those muscles so that we can uh, grow. Okay, let's go to point 3. Uh, He's going to dive into the hows and the wherefores of all of this activity and later in the chapter. But first comes a caution. We are to do all of this activity, says verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. And let's quickly look at those uh, words. I think they're absolutely essential characteristics for smoothly functioning spiritual muscles. First essential attitude is lowliness. And the word is strengthened by the word all. He says, all lowliness, not just some. Obviously, that rules out pride. It rules out self-centeredness. Uh, Walter Cronkite told a story on himself one time when he and his wife were out sailing on the uh, Mystic River in Connecticut. They were in shallow water. And there was another boat that was waving at them, shouting at them. 
And he just waved back at them and gave them a nice greeting. And he thought this was so lovely. And his wife, who knew they were warning him, said, you know what they're saying? He says, yeah, they're saying, um, hello. Um, how, how did they word it? Hello, Walter. She says, no, they're shouting low water, low water. <laughs> and we do have a tendency to try to reinterpret data for our self-serving purposes. Now, this word, all lowliness, goes even farther than that because this would have been a shocking term for first century um, Greeks to have read. Pagan Greeks despised this term and here's what some of the ancient Greeks said about this term. Um, they characterized it as, quote, the crouching submission of a slave. So is Paul really calling us to have the attitude of a crouching slave? Epictetus, another ancient Greek, said it's having a low opinion of oneself. Plutarch says it means to be in an inferior position, to degrade oneself. And so I, I like this translation of all lowliness. Paul is saying every one of us has to have the attitude we are the lowest person on the totem pole. Now, in case you think it can't possibly mean that, he's, he, he has to be calling us to have self-esteem. We can't possibly be the lowest person on the totem pole. Let me read from Philippians 2.3 where this word is used again. It says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. That's exactly the same Greek word. Then comes the amplification of what it means. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So he does indeed mean that we need to consider ourselves to be the lowest person on the totem pole and other people as being better than ourselves. Paul is taking this word very literally. Uh, most of the obstacles to community, I think, would be ruled out if we'd take this admonition seriously. We need to stop thinking highly of ourselves. In fact, we need to stop thinking about ourselves altogether and take the attitude of a slave. What does the master need? What do other people need? Some people come into the church just to suck that church dry. That's their whole intention is to receive, receive, receive from other people. And Paul says, no, every believer needs to have an attitude of service. It doesn't matter how new or how messed up that new believer might be. He needs to immediately be involved in ministry and service. If we're not serving other people, we are shortchanging ourselves. You think you're shortchanging others. You are shortchanging yourself. And so right from the time our children were very young, two years of age, and even younger, if possible, we would try to get them to have servants' hearts. We'd have the little toddler. Here, take this diaper to mother. Now, we could get it faster than they would get it, but we're teaching them how to have this attitude of service toward other people. And the moment a person comes into the church, becomes a new believer, they need to have uh, an attitude of service. So, if you think, I'll begin to serve once I get my life... Uh, and all the messed up things sorted out, you've got an attitude that's going to destroy community. Every single person, every single person, doesn't matter how weak or immature they are, needs to have this slave uh, or servant's heart. Complainers and users would be cured if they would ask God to daily give them lowliness of mind, the attitude of servant, seeing others as more important than themselves. Now, I think you can see just from that first word why I say that community is a gift of God and it will never be achieved apart from His grace working in us. I mean, it takes the power of the indwelling Spirit uh, for us to have this kind of lowliness. Okay, second essential, 
And verse 2 is gentleness. And in the Greek literature, it's contrasted to harshness and brusqueness. And you might think, yeah, when everything's going well, I'm very gentle. But, you know, a grizzly bear is gentle when he's hibernating, right? Uh, this gentleness is not tested. You don't know whether you have the supernatural grace unless you're gentle in the circumstances where you would be tempted to be brusque and to be harsh with other people. We must be gentle in our speech, gentle in our actions, gentle in our reproofs. Galatians 6 says, even when there's a person who has fallen into grievous sin and he needs to be rebuked, he needs to be confronted, you need to do it in gentleness. Let me read that verse. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now, you're going to be much more likely to be gentle if you realize, man, if it wasn't for God's grace, I could be doing exactly the same thing that that person is engaged in. Very quickly, long-suffering is an essential for community because the community involves differences, doesn't it? And the eye could very easily get impatient with the ear and the foot could very easily get impatient with the mouth. But when the grace of long-suffering or patience is at work, all people, all of them can work together. Bearing with one another, basic meaning of the verb there is to endure, to tolerate. You might think, man, church ought to have put together people. Why do we need to tolerate or endure one another? Well, it speaks to the fact God doesn't instantly sanctify us. There are things we're going to have to put up with. In fact, that's the way some translate it. Put up with one another. Why? Because there's still much sanctification that needs to be done. Now, he's not saying here even that we should put up with one another, but still have a negative attitude. Uh, we're to put up with one another in love, in love. Uh, we do it in love because we desire their best rather than our comfort. And so you can see this would be a very important principle for community. We've got to be convinced in our minds it is worthwhile to put up with a lot or as some translate it, to be forbearing. Wonderful characteristic, even in family community, work community, any community. And then finally comes love. Love does not ignore calls to holiness. It does not ignore sin when sin is present. But love is self-giving. It is self-sacrificial. It is interested in the other person's welfare. People can tell if you're putting up with them, but you hate their guts. Or if you are forbearing, you're putting up with them because you love them. You're interested in their welfare. Now, if you knit those five characteristics together, you have a wonderful chance of having biblical community. Very, very important pillar. Last thing that Paul says in these verses is endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so the fourth pillar is the pillar of human responsibility. It takes hard work. And that's why he uses the word endeavor. We've got to work at it. The rest of the chapter is going to tell us exactly how we work at this community. But secondly, it takes being on guard. And thus the word keep. Some translations have be on guard. Uh, there will always be things that are going to be trying to destroy unity and Satan's going to do his absolute best effort at destroying community. And so Paul in chapter 6 says, look, we need to be engaged in spiritual warfare. We need to be on guard. So we need to work at it. We need to be on guard. Thirdly, we need to receive of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. It is a, a community or a unity that is only accomplished by the Holy Spirit which means that unity will be more and more characterized by the Spirit, right? And then finally, he speaks of the bond of peace. Now, here it's 
peace that is a bond that holds unity together. In Colossians, it is love that is a bond that holds community together. There's no contradiction. As one commentator said, you know, if peace is the foundation that's holding up the roof, you know, love is the, the walls that are holding up the roof. Both are true and both uh, are, are, are needed. And really, in one sense, you could say that all of the characteristics of verse 2 are the bond, the, the sticky, they are the glue that holds that community together. They're all needed. All the, 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 um, the characteristics of verse 2, it's the glue of unity. And so, in conclusion, my admonition is to make sure we live out uh, each verse of chapters 1 through 2 in the community that we seek. Secondly, that we appropriate His power to do so. Thirdly, that we let our community be richly characterized by the graces of verse 2. And then finally, that we work diligently at persevering what the Spirit is doing. And may God receive all of the glory from the fruit that comes from the community at Dominion Covenant Church. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for the instructions of Your Word. Uh, I pray that You would give us a glad-heartedness about applying and appropriating those with diligence. Uh, give to us, Father, uh, new insights into Your Word and give to us new abilities to practice Your Word. Subdue our flesh which fights against this very unity and enable us by Your Spirit to be sanctified in this area of life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.